Hey everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Dialogue Podcast. My name is Asande and today I'm going to be facilitating a panel discussion with four awesome medical professionals about some of the basics and uncertainties surrounding the current coronavirus pandemic. We're going to be discussing everything from its pathology to how it should be managed, what the WHO recommends, to their personal experiences as healthcare providers. In the house today, we have a pathologist, we have a research clinician currently working in an NGO that's focused on the strengthening of health systems, we have the director of Classic Health, who's worked in both the public and private sector to strengthen various health systems, and we have a public health specialist who is focused on health system strengthening. For this episode, you'll notice that my friend and co-host Rahul isn't with me today, but he's definitely going to be back taking charge of the next episode, facilitating some awesome discussion with either myself or a future exciting guest that he has planned for you guys. But for now, kick back, relax, and take a listen. To clarify the pathogenesis of COVID-19, because I just felt like there was so much information some of it misinformation that it might be good to start the listeners off and clarify how it actually um, enters the body the mechanism that it uses to cause disease and so forth uh, but just to say with regard to pathogenesis uh, remember this is a novel uh, virus so the pathogenesis is poorly understood However, most of, of, of what is known or what is referred to as the pathogenesis of uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 is mainly, uh, you know, sort of extrapolated or they think the mechanism is similar to SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV, which are also coronaviruses that uh, caused the pandemics in, in, you know, in, in the past. So, uh, what happens with, with the SARS-CoV-2, uh, which is the same thing with SARS-CoV, the, the, you know, the one that was the, the SARS in 2003, they mm-hmm. both have a predilection or they attach to the angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, the ACE2 receptors. So they bind to those receptors in the, in the type 2 uh, pneumocytes of the lungs and that binding causes or will trigger a, a cascade of inflammation in the lower respiratory tract. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you look at the um, at the at, at, at the, the the structure of the virus, it has uh, the envelope uh, spike glycoprotein, uh, protein, which is what actually binds to the to the ACE2 uh, uh, receptors. So after the virus enters the cell, so it has, uh, it will attach and then it will enter the cell. After it enters the cell, uh, the genome is released into the, into the cytoplasm. So the RNA genome, which then gets translated into two polypeptide, uh, poly, polyprotein and structural proteins. And then thereafter, the viral genome begins to, to replicate. So, once it's, it's inside the cell, just like any other pathogen, it will get presented to the, to the sort of the immune system. So it gets presented to the antigen presentation cell, which is, you know, the central part of the, 
the antiviral immunity, and this will trigger or stimulate uh, the uh, body's humoral and uh, the cellular immunity. So mm -hmm. with regard to uh, SARS-CoV-2, so typically, obviously, once the, the, the humoral and cellular immunity has been stimulated, uh, a person will obviously, you know, the host will form the, the antibodies, obviously starting with the IgM, and then, um, you know, a few days later, it will be the IgG production. And we know with, with antibody production, obviously, you start with your IgM first, and then IgG follows. So IgM goes up, and then it will go down, and then IgG production uh, will follow maybe after a few days, let's say about seven days or so, it will follow. And it may remain, uh, it's not known, it may remain you know, elevated for a while. So those are some of the things that are not yet known with, uh, mm -hmm. with, with the virus. So we don't know whether the, the Ig antibody can last for a long time or whether they wait after, you know, after some time. Um, the other thing is with, with, with regard to all that, there's also a cytokine storm that happens with, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, uh, COVID-19. So it will be, you know, that sort of an uncontrolled uh, systemic inflammatory response, which results to, uh, you know, release of large amount of the uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines and the chemokines. And this obviously is what then triggers a violent attack of the immune system uh, to the body. This will cause multiple organ failure, including the acute respiratory distress syndrome, even though now you know, maybe it doesn't cause ARDS, but that's how it uh, starts to, you know, to cause the damage. It causes ARDS and multiple organ um, failure because of the that violence attack that it causes to the, to the immune system. And obviously, uh, you know, that can finally lead to the death of, of, of an individual. And one other thing about, you know, with any, most of the pathogens, once they enter the immune system, I mean, once they enter the body, they sort of have to survive in the body. And the way they will survive, or they have to survive the whole cell. And obviously, sort of like uh, evade or um, have a strategy uh, to, to evade or to survive in the host cell. So they think that, you know, obviously uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, just like SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV also do, is doing the same thing. And uh, so they think that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, so the SARS-CoV and the mers will induce the production of a double membrane vesicle. Okay. So this double membrane vesicle is sort of like an evading system. It's a, a, sorry, an immune evasion system. So as a way to hide from the, mm -hmm. what you call the, the pump, the pathogen mm -hmm. molecular pattern. Uh, sorry, to evade okay. uh, from skin, uh, pattern recognition receptors that the immune system uses to recognize an invading uh, organism. Where it coats itself with the host, with the membrane of the host. So you're not able to differentiate between mm -hmm. the foreign um, antigen and the host 
yes. So because you remember that your immune system will use certain things, and one of them, like you say, is the it, uh, the the pump uh, recognizes certain patterns. So we call that a pattern recognition receptor. So they will recognize certain patterns that oh, here is something that does not belong to us. So in order for the virus to hide itself, so that it's not you know a different from you know the rest of the cells in the body, it is thought. They they don't know yet how uh, the SARS-CoV-2 is doing, but it's thought that just like the SARS-CoV-2 and the MERS-CoV-2, it also induces the production of a double membrane vesicle that lacks this uh, pattern recognition receptor, so that the immune system is not able to to recognize it and you know induce an sort of an inflammatory response. So that's how it I suppose it's not very successful then in hiding, considering that the immune response is usually uh, mounted within a few days. I'm thinking and comparing it to HIV, where the immune system can take up to 12 weeks before it's mounted uh, from this virus. So this one, uh, by implication, it's not that good at evading the immune system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 14 yeah, 14 days. Like you say, that's much shorter than the, the, the HIV virus. HIV. But I think mm. what would be very relevant um, for, for, for anybody listening is the fact that essentially viruses seem to behave the same. And it's very easy for mm -hmm. uh, anyone listening to sort of try and relate this to the HIV virus, you know? The very um, hiding in the immune system that COV does is exactly how the HIV you know, also mm. behaves. Firstly, secondly, the origin, you know, or where we think it comes from, you know, is is also of animal origin, just like the HIV virus. And what becomes interesting mm. though is that from what I understand is that your SARS and MERS cov are actually usually transmitted from bats. But when you look at the mm. Wuhan um, experience, it was from a fish market. So that, that also just brings in, I suppose, some sort of question of, of how did that then become the source um, of, of those initially infected people, you know? Um, but further to that as well, I think it brings in the, 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 the conversation of why we've been exploring antiretrovirals as part of the treatment. And that's because like I've said, um, it, it behaves just like the HIV virus. Um, would behave slightly different, of course, in, because they are different organisms. But that's why we would then move on to ask ourselves, could the antiretrovirals be a solution, you know, um, to, to, mm -hmm. to, to the treatment of, of, of this particular, yeah, uh, virus that we are now faced with, which is COV-2. So that's been a very extensive explanation that's actually clarified a lot of things, but I just had a follow-up question because earlier on, um, our pathologist had referred to the fact that you mount, I think it was IgM and then IgG afterwards, but mm -hmm. lately it's becoming apparent that there are some people who are still falling ill with COVID-19 even after recovering. So is there then the possibility that there's already multiple strains circulating in certain areas, which means that you can't guarantee someone immunity? Mm. I think with, with, with regard to maybe uh, 
maybe what we can say is a reinfection. It's not known whether a person can be reinfected or not. That's number one. It's, it's still, you know, something there's a debate. Uh, but initially they thought that, you know, a person could be reinfected. However, the thinking now is maybe those people that we thinking they are sort of getting reinfected, some of them, you find that the person tested positive and then you test them again, they become negative. And then you test them again, they have some cough or, you know, common cold symptoms. You test them again and they are positive. However, they that might be the persistent shedding. So one of the things that is also not known about the SARS-CoV-2 is that how long will a person have a, a shedding? You know, yeah, shedding of the virus. So um, the other thing is with, with organisms, uh, your shedding can be persistent depending on you know, your immune system. Sometimes shedding becomes intermittent. So you, you shed, like for example, if I have to test you now, you may be positive and then maybe you are negative, so intermittent shedding. So those are some of the things that are not yet known, and obviously there is research uh, uh, going on. Whether, you know, it's, it's because when a person tests positive, again, it's a new strain, or when a positive, uh, when a person tests, again, it's a reinfection, it, 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 I don't think it's, it's known at this stage. Yeah, and that's, that's very interesting. And you know, it will be interesting to know once you've recovered how long you know the the immune the protection the antibodies that you've developed you know that are supposed to now be aware of this virus and act fast. How long that protection lasts for? If it lasts for a long time at all, at all. Another point that I wanted to raise also another issue is with the current uh, lab tests we have we can't really differentiate between the active and, and not non-active uh, virus. So if someone has had the treatment, has had the infection and is actively infected currently, and then how long um, it takes to completely clear the virus. So we're not able to tell whether the, pe the person right now is actively infected or they've been infected for uh, two weeks ago if they're still positive. Isn't it the, the lab, the techniques that are used right now are not able to uh, differentiate between the two scenarios. Yeah, if, if I can just come in there with the issue of um, whether the antibody immunity and how long it lasts. In fact, from, okay. from some conversations that have been had, um, one virologist mentioned that they're not even sure whether the antibodies mounted are protective against future mm -hmm. infection, you know, at all, mm -hmm. you know. And like you say, mm -hmm. Rosie, the nature of a PCR, if we, for instance, compare it to a TB PCR, which is the gene expert, it, the, the, it will still pick up a, you know, the presence of even dead virus, you know, um, and therefore, as a result, you're not able at times with, with PCR type studies to establish whether we're still looking at active or non-active organism. But I think, um, you know, our microbiologists can elaborate further. Thanks. Which which makes me wonder: those people that are suspected to be reinfected, were they symptomatic? The cases that I've actually come across are of people who have gone through the the protocol of testing negative twice within twenty four hours, 
and then they go out into the public and then they come back for a third test, oftentimes asymptomatic, sometimes symptomatic, and they test positive. So now it's a question of, were there false negatives involved? Are these people getting reinfected with a different strain? Um, like one of our participants pointed out, is there intermittent shedding? So there's lots of questions around that as well. It's true. I think had, um, certain scenarios where, because of the type of uh, specimens we take up, in fact, what's been found is that the best to isolate is a bronchiovular lavage as, as mm -hmm. top, the second becoming sputum. But remember that the symptoms here are of a dry cough. And we cannot take patients for induced sputum, which will aerate the organism further and increase infection uh, possibilities for whoever's doing the procedure. So we're doing nasopharyngeal um, and, you know, and uh, swabs, which have a yield, but that yield is obviously less than the first two that have been mentioned. So there was an experience, I think, in Italy, if I'm not mistaken, where a patient was only found on ventilation to be positive, but all specimens taken prior to her reaching that end stage grade of the disease have been negative. And it was only mm -hmm. at the point where she was ventilated when they took that final specimen, um, which was obviously a much better healed um they found that actually it's been called all all along you know mm -hmm. so yeah so, but however i think with regard when you look at any negative test you know it 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 may um we need to look at beside the the test itself what are other reasons a test is negative so uh, one of the reasons a test can be negative when a person really has the disease could be the, the how was the specimen collected? Was the specimen mm -hmm. uh, collected appropriately? One, and uh, let's say it's, it's a specimen that may have been in, because the recommendation as well is with, with the specimen, yes, you can take a dry swab, uh, uh, however, ideally, that specimen should be in a viral transport media. And, and the reason why it should be in a viral transport media, you want to preserve the integrity of the RNA. RNA is very sort of fragile, if I have to, to put it that way. So you want to preserve uh, 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 that, um, uh, that integrity of the RNA. So, some, so when, we, when we're talking about, we, we cannot only talk about the sensitivity of, of the of the you know, maybe the test or whatever. We also need to look at what, what, how was the specimen collected? How was it transported? And after how long, if it was not on, on a viral transport media, after how long did it reach the lab uh, before it was, it was processed? So those are the things that we, when we look at a negative uh, sample, especially if a person had tested positive or maybe the person has negative now and they test positive maybe two days later. Those are some of the things that we need to, to look at. Another thing that we also need to look at with regard to, to the testing, because it's a PCR. So PCR, remember, will target certain genes. So with regard to the SARS-CoV-2, it targets different genes. And in the past, you know, certain um, kits or certain PCRs because they're different ones, 
certain people will, will, will detect certain genes but not other genes. So you may find that in that person, maybe the, the, the gene that can be detected is maybe, you know, there, there's an S gene, there's an, I think the other one is EG, EG gene, the other one is P gene. So they have different genes. So you may find that maybe Roche, uh, Roche kids, maybe, I'm just making an example, uh, will, you know, is better in detecting the EG gene or is better in detecting maybe the S gene, so different genes. So those are, you know, when we look at a, a, a negative test or a test that you would say this person was negative uh, maybe yesterday, today, how come the person is positive? Those are all the things that we need to, to uh, take into consideration. Okay. But also looking at the fact that we have people here involved in public health or in health system strengthening, I was wondering if there are so many unknowns about the pathogenesis of a disease, how does that impact how you possibly manage it or prevent it on a community level? I think, Asa, that's quite an important question. And, and what I see happening, my personal opinion is that when that is the case, you can only learn from places where it, it, you know, it first spread, if I may put it that way. You, you, you're learning mostly from experiences of other counterparts um, within the health system. And in our case, I guess the Italian and the Chinese, um, you know, story becomes what we refer to quite, quite a lot. Um, as, as things evolve, you look at whether the regional aspect comes in. Um, as it is right now, we're wondering whether the fact that we have been using BCG as a immunization standard program has been protective of our region. Uh, when we start to establish or rather examine the patterns that we are seeing in terms of how much, um, you know, how, how quick it's spreading in comparison to those other countries. So, so without a sort of evidence-based um, which with our numbers right now, we don't have possibly enough to have one that is well informed. We use a lot more um, lessons learned from, from other regions, if I may put it, you know. Uh, that that I, is difficult. No, I definitely concur with your use um, and not but, and you also use um, experiences that you've had from past infections. We know the flu. Flu has been around for many, many years. And how do mm -hmm. you prevent flu from spreading? So that's when your cough etiquette, the washing of hands and all those come into full mm -hmm. view. So you base it on what you think has similar, similar characteristics with what you're dealing with right now, which currently we're comparing it to the influenza infection. Also, to, to just mention that one of the biggest things that we need to do in the public health setting is to look at community engagement and community involvement and, and uh, public health awareness. Because some of these messages, as, as, as we know our population, some of these messages that we can share, we can share in these platforms, we can share in platforms um, for people who have access to the internet, but largely it's really the people who do not have access to all these medium and uh, are, 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 who are most vulnerable. So we, we, we are really looking at, 
um, moving the, the the information sharing into a very less clinical, less 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 scientific method, but something that can be applicable in all the settings, in settings where there's dense dense populations, in settings where there's high HIV prevalence, where, which is probably one of the things that would give us a very different picture later on in the disease course um, compared to mm -hmm. other countries. So we're looking at making sure that our message is also applied to all the public um, settings in our country, in the context of our country. And one of the biggest message, biggest messages is really to make sure that the public is as informed, well informed, and as we mentioned, as the other speakers have mentioned, that we also need to start training them on prevention strategies and 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 and, and, and all those things that have been in place. So if you look at our program, we've had a large um, we've got we've had a big involvement of the politicians and all the all the structures that would then make decisions that would would go beyond just the health sector things that would strengthen the program beyond just the immediate health center and health professionals and and, and centers uh, of, of of seeking health and going largely into the community so that we can strengthen what happens in the community and um, information sharing there as well. So just to make things a little bit more, um, if I can put it, say, relevant, what would be some examples of current engagements that you've seen happening either in South Africa or around the world where the engagement has been beyond the healthcare sector, but has been involving different communities, especially those that are um, densely populated or may have high levels of immunosuppressed individuals? I think that one of the first steps that have been taken and, and probably uh, should have been at, you know, at, at, at right at the beginning is how we're starting to communicate at vernacular level, you know, we mm -hmm. the message in the form that everyone on the ground will actually understand. Because until we do that, that communication fails us in helping people understand why there's such, um, you know, uh, uh, stringent activities going on around this particular infection. They don't conceptualize it until it's brought to their finite understanding, which doesn't go beyond their actual language uh, communication. So there's been a, an active drive to make sure that key uh, general practitioners in their areas start to translate the message to a message that can be understood by their immediate community. That's now just on a communication level. Um, and I think somebody mm -hmm. else can explain the other sectors and how they've become involved. But for me, I just what I wanted to add for me, the political and um, the political involvement, you know, the fact that we're getting updates from various ministers from different sectors reporting back on systems that are putting in place to make sure that their you know domains are well aware and are doing something about the pandemic i think it, it's going to go a long way because you know they are embracing the disease and they are demonstrating that they are putting measures in place to fight the disease and we know people look up to the politicians they always listen to them so i think it really mm -hmm. helps it shows a long way to convey the message of seriousness in fighting the disease an example, thank you, thank you, thank you, ladies. 
an ex an example that I was thinking about is remember when the when the disease started and before we got it in South Africa, the message was that it is a Chinese disease and it's it's it's, mm. it's really regional. But as soon as the, the the disease came to our country and it landed, the the messaging needed to change from it being a regional does not affect us, affects the Chinese, and had to be translated very simply so that people can be aware that this is now a global um a, a global problem. So if you look at it from a public health perspective, we had to change our messaging from only those who've traveled overseas, only those who've been in contact with people who've traveled to a very community based and because now we're looking at a, a really local spread kind of picture. So one of the examples I was thinking about when you were asking that question is just that breaking it down to people, making it contextualized for our, for our, uh, our region and stop making it a very, um, distant kind of uh, disease that has not that, that has not been identified in our country so that's an example I could think about when you ask that question I suppose that's very true um, especially because just speaking to various other people like in class it's very hard when you're looking at other universities around the world being told to like pack up and go home and you don't think it's going to be you and then two weeks down the line it is you and the messaging changes it's not just things that happen elsewhere it's happening here yeah, and I think we 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 that might we we that way inclined, you know, until it touches that immediate person to you. Um, there's there's a level of sort of ignorance you decide to get into yourself, you know. Um, it's just been how we've reacted with things before COVID. It, uh, HIV took on the same type of picture. Um, there is still a level of denial in people who don't feel they can be um you know placed in that uh, sort of population that can be affected by by hiv until it actually becomes a reality in their immediate environment so so that starts to change and what we also start what what we've also seen is the fact that essentially because we've got other issues in our country the the, the initial action taken by the government was more negatively received because poverty is our reality. Our first inclination mm. was not, we could die. Our first inclination was, we're gonna lose income, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, it was, yeah. That became the bigger struggle. The bigger struggle was, you know, what are we going to eat? Uh, what's gonna happen to my business? More than, um, well, actually stay home because you could actually die from this, you know? Mm -hmm. Definitely. And you know, once you personalize it, I've seen where I work, where people were sort of not taking it that seriously until um, uh, Prof. Gita, Jam uh, Gita Ramji passed away. Mm. That's when people yeah. started noticing and they started being serious and started, you know, making sure they're taking precautions, they're using PPE, which before they were not so serious about it. So I think personalizing a disease, it really helps people wake up stand up and realize that you know it happens and it's here just and on that note i remember discussing with a few of my um friends they were saying that you know i think prof Gita ramji was a virologist so there was a bit of irony in that but it became a thing of no matter who you are you're not invincible and it's kind of striking how so late in the course of the pandemic only now is that message setting in yeah. I think it also, you know, the other thing is with regard to that, as, as we've seen that other people like, you know, uh, Prince Charles, you know, people of royalty, 
pastas have been infected. So it just shows that it does not choose color, it does not choose race, your educational level, it can infect across, you know, across the race, across, it, it, it doesn't uh, discriminate. So I think that's what uh, uh, people are beginning to understand and also appreciate. Even though I still feel that, uh, you know, certain people still feel that, you know what, it, 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 I don't, you know, like it, it's taken as a joke. Like when people say I don't have a passport. I would like to also just say that, you know, we may think it's just the general community that, that would react this way. But I think the same applies to ourselves as healthcare workers. Until something is generally in our immediate environment, we may be quite relaxed and, you know, to that point. So having a colleague being diagnosed did, you know, shake some circles quite a bit, um, especially because she mm -hmm. was quite a well-known uh, figure. But for myself personally, um, going through the process of having been in contact with a positive patient, um, having to, to self-isolate, awaiting the results, being symptomatic, it, it, it brought it home to an even larger degree. And I think then, mm -hmm. for me, the, the, the reaction to everything was quite markedly different to prior. And how simply it happened. I mean, this was a conference of a group of, 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 of colleagues um, where it could be anyone quite remote to, to me during that time. But um, interestingly, exactly 12 days post the contact, that's when my symptoms started. So I then spoke mm -hmm. to a colleague um, yesterday, did not know she went through the same, but she actually had given a lift to that person unknowingly of course um so so it's it's that close it's that easy and it could literally be anybody mm -hmm. yeah but just going back to the origins of this pandemic earlier on we talked about how we're using previous um experiences to kind of glean what we could expect with um, this COVID-19. We mentioned uh, SARS-CoV and we mentioned MERS-CoV, both of which were also pandemics that were zoonotic in origin. So why is it that most of the modern, the most recent pandemics tend to be zoonotic? With, with regards to uh, 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 pandemics being uh, most uh, Zoonotic in nature. I think most of when you look at uh, emerging diseases or re-emerging diseases, emerging meaning that it has not been uh, uh, described in in the human in a human being and it's something new in the human being. I think uh, the rate at which uh, the frequency of uh, uh, new pathogens are emerging uh, is is I think mostly it's because of the way we interact with the environment, or maybe should I say it, 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 it's related to uh, ecological or environmental factor. So one of the other things is um, uh, with, with regards to uh, infectious diseases, um, you know, environmental factors play a very huge role. I'll make an example, uh, climate being one of them, um, uh, population density 
uh, being another, another thing, and human behavior. So uh, coming to, to you know, some of the, of, of the examples, obviously we've had examples like influenza, which is also a zoonotic uh, uh, infection. Um, another mm -hmm. example could be Ebola, HIV mm -hmm. as well. So when you look at some of the environmental changes or some of the, you know, the impact that the environment has uh, in or contributing to um, emergence of, of, uh, of, of, of infectious diseases and some of them being obviously pandemic, not all of them are, are pandemic, some of them being pandemic. Uh, like I said, uh, climate change is, is one of the, of, 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 of the things that makes uh, um, infectious disease to emerge. And mm -hmm. another, uh, 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 like I said, human density, or you can even say human activity. For example, um, agricultural activities around, uh, you know, that happens. You may find that you have an area that was uh, previ previously, uh, uh, you know, inhabited by, by animals. And you mm -hmm. find that a certain virus was only infecting that egg animal. And with agricultural activities, or you can even say urbanization, we as human beings encroach, encroach that uh, 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 environment. You know, with, mm -hmm. with our agricultural activities, we build houses, and you know, the area becomes uh, urbanized. And with that, obviously, that brings us closer to the wildlife. Usually what happens, let's, let's make an example with uh, um, Ebola, for example. A virus that found in, in uh, thought to be found in a fruit bed, that is BATS, a fruit bed, and mm. infecting a chimpanzee with a human behavior or human coming closer to chimpanzees, they hunt on them, they use them as food. And because of that, the blood, they get infected from the blood of, 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 mm. of the animal. So that is a, a, you know, a, a close contact with uh, what was supposedly in the animal species. Now it's uh, you know, a virus or a, an organism jumping, or uh, what we call, yeah, a jumping species from one a species to the other, you know, from the animal species to the human species. So that's, that's, that's one of the reasons. So um, things like, uh, but what is also important is also trade. Uh, with trade, uh, we've seen that trade or what we call maybe globalization makes a, a, a disease that could have been localized or been in a region to be transmitted to other areas. We've seen this with, with uh, uh, um, not only Ebola, HIV, uh, we've seen this with even the, the uh, uh, COVID-19, that you know, it was initially started, started to be, to have started obviously from the, from also associated with death, mm -hmm. and uh, they suspect that maybe pangolians have been infected or snakes, even though it's not clearly proven. And with the interaction, people are going to the market, eating uh, uh, snakes and all that. 
they get infected and as they get infected uh, or they get exposed. Uh, so the infection will start in the animal, now becomes from animal to the uh, human beings, which is zoonosis, and then end up human to human uh, uh, transmission. Mm -hmm. So what started in China eventually ended up in other areas or other countries because of, of trade, uh, because of you know the world because of uh, you know taking place and all that the world has become so small a person can be in south africa to uh, in, in south africa today with no symptoms but infected or incubating and they travel to another part of the country uh, while in the incubation period when they get to that uh, country they start showing symptoms and they can infect people in that country. So those are some of the uh, uh, factors that contribute to emergence of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of infectious diseases, especially with, um, with uh, 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 zoonosis, because they, you know, like I said, climate changes, and um, also food security is one of the factors, you know, because, uh, you know, with Ebola, people will go out and hunt for chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. just those organisms with close contact of humans and uh, wildlife, uh, we end up with uh, organi uh, uh, infectious diseases emerging and sometimes causing pandemics uh, uh, like we see with the uh, COVID now, COVID-19 now. So, so the main yeah. principles would be it going from animal to human and then becoming human to human transmission. But I suppose my follow-up question would be, with some of the zoonotic diseases, they're not necessarily disease-causing in animals, but they are disease-causing in humans. So what are some of the factors that could lead to this difference? Sometimes it's because of a, a genetic reassortment, mm -hmm. uh, which a good example would be with influenza, you know, with uh, the uh, uh, influenza. Remember that we... We've had different uh, influenza, the swine influenza, avian influenza. So it may start in a in a certain um, a, a species like it, a, a pigs or in bears, and uh, when it gets to the human beings, it starts to uh, 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 reassort. There will be what we call genetic reassortment, or sometimes mm -hmm. a mutation that will happen uh, to make it more virulent. Because remember, you know with viruses or with organisms, they need to attach to a certain cell, be it a receptor or whatever. So if they find that that receptor may not be in that particular uh, host, they may change so that they are able to survive in that host and be able to attach. So, uh, uh, you know, genetic reassortment is one of the mechanisms whereby they are able to to survive in another in another species. Mm -hmm. And just latching on to the public health aspect of acknowledging a pandemic of zoonotic origin, as someone who's working in um, for those working in health system strengthening or those who are research clinicians, how do you go about preventing the reoccurrence of a zoonotic um, disease when you're trying to manage it from a public health aspect? I think that. I think um, researchers out there have realized that, you know, with zoonosis, we cannot win in isolation. 
So what has, uh, has happened, which is a, a, a new concept, is what is called One Health. So by One Health, is One Health recognizes that, you know, we have not only zoonotic diseases, but we also have diseases that affect the agricultural sector and also affect human beings. And same with diseases that affect uh, animals and affect human beings. So with that, they recognize that, you know what, as, as maybe doctors or uh, medical personnel, there is no way that we will be able to win without involving the agricultural sector and without involving the, the, the vets, you know, the, the animal uh, uh, sector. So that's where the concept of uh, One Health is coming in. So that, you know, uh, they are able, for example, if a, a, a vet realizes that, you know what, we have a cluster of uh, animals, let's say pigs, that are presenting with a, a respiratory symptom, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, the number increases. And they also, they, they will report that. And as they report that, obviously, maybe uh, the, the, the doctors, you know, the medical personnel will realize that, you know what, we've also had a number of uh, uh, patients presenting with uh, pneumonia. And when you look at that, most of them maybe have had contact with maybe, you know, the peaks or they went to the farm. So, Hence, it's, it's, it's quite important uh, that we work together with all the, the health sectors, not only mm -hmm. the, you know, from a human point uh, of view. And Asa, also, you know, to make um, research findings, whether positive or negative, available, because each research conducted into infectious disease or whatever other condition, it reveals something. I mean, you've heard of various researchers that have taken place uh, trying to look for a vaccine for HIV. Many of them have mm -hmm. failed, but they've taken forward the lessons that were learned from the previous ones to try to move the research agenda forward. So it happens mm -hmm. with research, with all uh, um, diseases and it will happen with this one as well they're taking the research that was learned from influenza that's that's how come the experimental drugs right now are all the anti antivirals not antiretrovirals but antivirals that were used to treat influenza and then they're trying them first here to see um, if patients will respond to this one will they work as well as they work in the influenza virus and if there's negative research, then what, what are the negative findings? How, what do we learn from these negative findings? What, how can we take the research forward? I, I think with, with regards to research, I agree. Another um, way, you know, just coming back to uh, things like uh, One Health, we, we've also realized that, you know, there are certain um, um, behavior in the maybe in the husbandry industry, like in the animal industry, that mm -hmm. uh, benefits the industry, however, may put uh, human beings into a risk. I'll make an example which is maybe not viral per se. For example, in the animal industry and also in the agricultural industry, they use antimicrobials a lot. So with, with animals, they will use them so that, you know, they don't get uh, sick and uh, they obviously use it with steroids and all that so that they can uh, grow faster, things like that. Mm -hmm. 
same thing with, with, with the agricultural sector, they will use um, pesticides, some of them are antimicrobial. And you find that you know, with the use of those antimicrobials in those industries, you find that uh, there will be resistance developing. And you find that that antimicrobial has never been used by human beings. And all of a sudden, when a person tests, you know, a person gets infected, maybe they came into contact with the animals or whatever, they get infected and they develop an infection with an, a, a resistant organism, resistant to, to an antibiotic that has never been used or is not widely used in the human being. So I think the, the one thing about One Health that I like, the, the, the concept of One Health is, is helping us and helping other industries that have an indirect uh, uh, effect to, you know, to the human being. Uh, you know, to stop that, you know, stop the use of antimicrobial hands. We now see woolies will say they are, you know, they are maybe they are chicken, they don't use antibiotics, they don't use steroids, because we know that when they use those uh, antibiotics, when we eat those uh, animals, we may end up, should we be infected, we may end up with resistant organisms for an antibiotic that you've never used before. So that's where, yeah, the One Health concept uh, comes into play. And also with regards to One Health, a vaccine that may have been effective in animals can be, you know, you test it. It works in animals and this is how it behaves. Maybe let's see, maybe it will help with, uh, uh, you know, in the humankind. So that's why this collaboration is quite important. Those are very interesting points you brought in, but looking again at research and us trying to extrapolate from our previous experiences, I saw very early on in the pandemic that people were comparing the mortality of coronavirus or COVID-19 to the mortality of a seasonal flu. And initially it was lower than, but it's now becoming apparent that that's not actually the issue. So what makes COVID-19 more virulent than what we've come to know as the seasonal flu? Okay, I think, um, like I say, a lot is still not known about uh, 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 COVID-19. However, maybe some of the, uh, what we know that uh, makes us, uh, you know, we are now aware that it's, it's, it's more uh, uh, sort of virulent. I don't know if virulent is, will be the correct word, <laughs> but maybe okay. uh, I don't know, I'll come there. But maybe virulent is not the correct word. But with with regards to uh, when you compare flu and COVID, with flu, when you look at the RO index, RO index means that you know the the number of if if I am infected, how many people will I infect? So mm -hmm. with with uh, uh, the influenza, if I am infected. Uh, with influenza virus, I will infect 1.3 human beings. So that's how, you know, with the calculation of the RO index, they found that it infects about 1.3. Uh, uh, so mm -hmm. that's the RO number or the RO index. Whereas with COVID-19, it's about 2.2. So if I'm infected with COVID, the chances are I will infect two people. So you see the, the magnitude compared to uh, the flu, uh, uh, the influenza, that's number one. The other thing with regards to the influenza and COVID is there maybe the difference in the incubation period. 
with influenza, the incubation period is slightly shorter compared to the COVID uh, uh, virus, uh, I mean the COVID-19. So if I have influenza, I will uh, be infected and then I will uh, develop disease uh, quicker than a person with COVID-19. And I can take action, I can isolate, mm. I can stay home, I can take medication. Whereas with a person that uh, has COVID-19, they may be, you know, during the incubation period, uh, uh, maybe still asymptomatic, still, you know, there is a chance of still transmitting the, the, uh, uh, the infection. So that's where the other uh, difference is. And uh, the other thing is when you look at the influenza, obviously, you know, you can look at uh, depending which one you look at. Because remember with influenza, we've had certain uh, pandemics as well. So the Spanish flu was like one of the pandemics that was like, yeah, maybe almost like a, a COVID-19. And mm -hmm. uh, when we look at H1N1 in 2009, yes, it was mm -hmm. pandemic. But when you look at the mortality from that, mm -hmm. it's not as high as the mortality that we are getting with um, with uh, uh, COVID-19. So, and also the hospitalization rate with, with the, like for example, if you in, uh, uh, compare H1, H1N1 to COVID-19, they, they are, they are uh, uh, different. And the, the, the other reason could be, remember this is now something novel. You know, with COVID-19, it's something novel. We don't have immunity to it. Okay, maybe people that have been infected, some of them may have immunity. We don't know how protective it is, uh, those antibodies that they have, but initially there was no immunity. Whereas with influenza, so with influenza you have, you know, what we call the antigenic shift and the antigenic drift. So you may have minor uh, 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 rearrangement of the gene, making it maybe uh, virulent and also major uh, uh, rearrangement or, or assortment of the gene. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we know that influenza is, is something seasonal. So you may have had the influenza last year and then it mutates slightly this year. And, you know, because we've had, you have sort of like kind of immunity to it, you may survive uh, the influenza. Whereas with uh, COVID-19, not so much because we don't have immunity. However, having said that, remember that with COVID, as much as we say that the, the case fatality is maybe slightly higher than the influenza, when you compare it to other diseases, for example, if you have to compare COVID-19 with Ebola, uh, mm -hmm. the fatality rate for Ebola is much higher compared to uh, COVID-19. So COVID-19 may be more infectious as in it's maybe okay. it's spread, it may be more uh, uh, infectious in, in the sense that, you know, it may be easily transmitted compared to your, maybe your Ebola. Uh, but uh, when it comes to fatality, the case fatality, uh, something like Ebola, you will, you know, you die, the chances of you dying are higher than with uh, COVID-19. So there's still a lot that we don't, uh, that is not known, uh, but you know, when, when we compare it to the influenza, 
there is obviously you know some uh, uh, difference so it's so you know i agree um you know that currently it seems like the COVID 19 is more um, infectious. You refer to the RO index, which, yeah, true. It's similarly, it's more, it, 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 it's more infectious than your normal influenza. But when you look at where we are right now, it's still very early days. And mm -hmm. there's lots of unknowns. And the unknowns also contribute to, um, you know, the, the prediction that maybe it's more virulent than influenza because as well as we don't know you you touched on the fact that the influenza it's you know it's predictable we know it's a seasonal flu so we can predict that it's going to start in may and in june so it gives us you know a level of certainty and we know how to deal with it mm -hmm. the fact that with COVID 19 we really can't right now because we we still don't fully understand the pathogenesis we don't understand whether it's it's going to be a seasonal or it's just going to be going uh, throughout the year and you look at the fatalities yeah yeah yes the number seems a bit high but if you compare it to the infections it really comes down to is it is it two percent or less or even point something percent it's so one point, would, i think yeah one point three yeah 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 so would you then say with absolute certainty that it causes more fatalities than you know i think it's too isn't it too early to say that shouldn't we rather wait and see how this unfolds then we can come to those conclusions that it, it was more fatal than influenza influenza kills a lot of people i mean annually i think it's it's about 600 um at 600,000 or, or more, you know, that people that die of influenza. So we're not really sure here whether it's going to be to that scale. We think it might. So we can't make those decisions right now and say, yes, it's more fatal than influenza. I think this is from, you know, obviously with everything, you know, there are models that are used, statistical tools or analysis that are made. So from those analysis, I think at this point, they think, you know what, the case fatality rate. Because remember initially we thought, ah, no, when we're looking at the case fatality, it looked like it was, you know, no, not, not that much. I, I mean, even now the percentage with South Africa, I think now they say it's two to 4%. So that's where we are sitting with the case fatality. So I yeah. think it's, you know, obviously they are using tools to predict. Uh, I agree with you; it's too early in the in the in the pandemic. Uh, but yeah, those are uh, some of the obviously conclusions that we can take for now. Uh, we don't know in the future. Just to touch on another aspect of um, the disease course of COVID nineteen, it seems that. In the earlier stages, people are using age as kind of the mark to tell who will end up in ICU. And then as the pandemic progressed, it became apparent that you can't rely on age. Now people are turning to markers such as gender or sex. But why is it so hard to pinpoint who ends up in ICU? You know what? I think because the disease is quite, uh, like you say, it's a novel disease. We don't know how it behaves. Uh, but we can um, elaborate it earlier that, you know, what we 
we are saying, most of the things that are coming out uh, is what we have learned from the, uh, you know, the, the, the population of China and um, as other areas. And when you look at most of the of what uh, has been found, it's found that most people who succumb or who will have a severe disease and end up in ICU are people with comorbid disease. And there was also a very nice, I think, study from the Italian where they looked at, you know, they looked at obviously what kind of morbidity do these people who end up in ICU have. Most of the morbidities mm -hmm. are you know, cardiorespiratory kind of morbidity, age, uh, and obviously age as not as a comorbidity, but also as a risk uh, for, the, for those people. And I, I suppose it makes sense that, you know, age will be there because most of these people with comorbid disease are, you know, of advanced age. So uh, with regards to that, it's, it's, you know, you are people with hypertension, people with uh, any form of cardiac disease, uh, people with uh, asthma, uncontrolled asthma, COPD, any uh, uh, chronic lung disease. So that is with the, with the studies that have been done in, in China, Italy, and so forth. And with regards to uh, uh, this comorbidity, they found that you know if a person has one comorbidity, obviously their risk is this much. I can't remember. I think I have it somewhere on my phone. But I, they found that okay, maybe you'll have X uh, uh, percentage of the risk. And the more the morbidities you have, so people with three or more uh, comorbidities were obviously at even a higher risk compared to uh, uh, um, you know those with uh, uh, less. But, and, and like we've seen even in our population in South Africa, most people who have demise are people with, with comorbidities and uh, also people of advanced age. Even though we, you know, with, with regards to age, we, we've also seen people in their 40s uh, not really so advanced in age. So mm -hmm. bringing me back uh, to South Africa, I suspect with our population, uh, our comorbidity is mainly HIV and uh, TB. So mm -hmm. it, it, we'll see in, with time. And there have been uh, patients that obviously that are HIV positive that have been diagnosed with COVID-19. Uh, uh, COVID so obviously as the time goes on, we will have enough numbers to compare and say maybe out of maybe 200 uh, patients that were HIV positive and also had COVID-19, how many of them ended up in ICU? Out of this number of TB patients, how many of them ended up in ICU and how many of them survived? So at this stage, I think that to, to the predictors, most of the time we use what uh, China and all the other countries that are in ad advanced in the pandemic have been using. And I would say, I know we say it's not easy to predict, but I think uh, most of the countries, that's what they are seeing, you know, advanced age, uh, people with comorbidity. So I would like to think we, we're not doing that bad in terms of uh, 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 predicting who gets severe disease. I, I totally agree. Uh, certainly, people with, with a lot of comorbid illnesses, 
they usually get to experience the severity of any disease, not necessarily comorbid, because their population at risk. The interesting thing, though, about HIV is that the studies that have been, you know, the little numbers that have been reported and bearing them in mind that it's little numbers. So little numbers will not give us conclusive data or con absolute confidence, mm -hmm. you know, that it's, it's really how it seems to be. Having been shown HIV as a risk factor for severity of COVID illnesses, especially for people who are stable in their diseases and taking uh, their ARVs well. It's not really known, the ones that haven't been studied on ARVs that are severely immunosuppressed, although there was some theory about, you know, HIV-infected people have got impaired cellular, cellular, cellular mediated immunity, which might protect mm -hmm. them from getting severe, a severity of disease with COVID illnesses. So it's really a watch and see what happens. It's very early on, it's very new, and it's evolving. And there's lots of other theories that are coming on board, but they'll only be proven with time as we see more. We might see difference in disease here in, in, in South Africa, simply because our genetic makeup might be different from the Italians and predominantly Caucasian um, population. It's been seen with various other diseases, so it might actually be different here. We might be seeing more numbers of younger people and we'll just have to see what causes them to end up having severe disease as opposed to in these other countries. So in terms of managing this from a public health aspect, when you get to a stage where you have certain indicators that can pinpoint who will be the most severe in terms of um, clinical presentation, but it's also kind of a wait and see, does that affect the messaging that you'd be giving to communities? I don't know. I think I think the message should be, you know what, we we are all prone to the disease. Uh, also based on the way the disease gets uh, transmitted. We are all prone to having the disease. And um, because like you say, it's still early on. Uh, we we do have some knowledge of who is um, you know mostly at risk of developing severe disease. However, you know, we, we are all probed and this is a disease that does not uh, 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 discriminate. It will affect um, everyone and anyone. So I think that's the message. Should, uh, and also the and also the messaging to the healthcare workers, you know, working with um, uh, with uh, patients that will possibly have the disease. They all have the same message. So how you screen for possible severity, you use the same criteria. And age is really one of them, but not the only criteria you use. So you use um, shortness of breath and comorbid illness for everyone. So you screen everyone for that, and that will help you assess the severity of the disease. So it's the community at large and the health workers. The messaging should more or less be the same, but we know the health workers, it's more the screening messages that are key to make sure you don't miss the ones that present with severe disease, that they're picked up early and, you know, a treatment is started early. I think hence with, with treatment, when we look at our treatment protocol, so obviously patients that have severe disease will be treated with, uh, with chloroquine and patients who may have mild disease but uh, have a risk factor, those patients will also be treated. So 
it also uh, uh, goes to show that you know we, we know that this person they may be presenting with mild disease but we're looking at them we, we're screening them and we know that they have the potential of developing a severe disease even though they look like they have mild disease uh, but those are also treated so and mm -hmm. um, i agree with what uh, that, you know we need to obviously we, we know the risk factors so when we screen patients, those risk factors uh, are taken into consideration. So I've seen a lot of the messaging from politicians and perhaps other countries has been that the main prerogative from a public health point of view would be to do as many tests as possible. So with South Africa currently only having done about 64,000 tests, are we in a position to say that we have adequate testing numbers of facilities or is that something that we should have to work with? So um, when it comes to testing, I think what has, what has been happening, especially in the public health space, is that there's a criteria that people, uh, a person that needs to be investigated must meet. So it's somebody who's had the, the history of the contact, maybe has had a, 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 a pneumonia of unknown etiology, or yeah, travel history was one of those things that we met, and then they also present with symptoms. So when it comes to testing, one the other issue is accessibility. There was not too much access to to test to testing uh, in in the other less um, the the remote areas. But when it came to testing in the public health setting setting, they still are requiring that you meet a certain criteria. I know that in the public private health system, they are testing a bit widely and um, a bit more patients. But you are definitely right, we have probably not reached our testing potential. I think with regard to testing, I think um, South Africa has, well, obviously we didn't maybe start aggressively initially, but I think now they realize that, you know, as soon as we started with um, community uh, uh, transmission, because initially all the cases were imported. So as soon as the community transmission started, um, you know, there have been initiatives. And I think one of the initiatives is with this uh, uh, mobile testing that goes or door-to-door -door testing, which I think is a great uh, uh, initiative where at least people that could not when one who will not be coming to hospital to test or people who will not even think about presenting maybe you know you know we may be able to to get uh, uh, those people and also people who can't afford you know people don't like to go queue in public hospitals mm -hmm. and yet they cannot afford uh, you know private uh, uh, rates so i think it's a it's, it's quite a good initiative mm -hmm. Um, I think just to also add, I think the concern that still stands, and um, this is now from sort of, um, in, you know, uh, uh, opinion I gathered from the Italian experience, is the fact that we do have the asymptomatic transmission. We are still sticking to the World Health Organization advice to only screen those that are you know, considered to be symptomatic. What also is of concern further to that is even as we speak of who should be given PPE and, and which type of PPE, 
it still refers to if you're nursing a COVID positive client. And the question always becomes, COVID positive is only post being tested. But whilst you are screening that person, they are COVID positive. And therefore you're not protected until you have a result in front of you. Mm -hmm. That is a bigger concern. And that's probably the type of transmission we will start seeing what their experience was, was the fact that because they stuck to symptomatic, their numbers were not truly reflective of what they ended up seeing mm -hmm. as this widespread, um, you know, sort of curve that just steeped up and resulted in quite a number of deaths. The true picture started to show them that actually it looks like uh, there's a large percentage of what they ended up seeing being from the asymptomatic spread. And, 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 and it is a concern mm. that the World Health Organization has, has stuck to let us only screen for now those that are symptomatic. It's understandable on a public health approach to say we have probably capacity economically to, to, to prioritize the symptomatic but it must not be seen to, 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 to sort of nullify the fact that there is asymptomatic spread, especially when it now comes to the protection that we um, are advising, especially at healthcare facilities. I do want to thank you all for taking the time to actually take part in the discussion for the podcast. And I'm hoping to have you back sometime in the future to discuss other things, whether Corona is still relevant then or whether we end up talking about other public health issues. But it was such a pleasure to have you guys on. Thank you. Thank you very You're much welcome. for the opportunity, You're most thank welcome. You. Yeah, and thank you for creating this platform. I actually think I enjoyed it. I think it would be great if we do it again, ladies. I really enjoyed it. I learned from all of you. Uh, it's really nice. You know, you can think you know a lot and then until you start uh, listening to people in these platforms and then you realize that, you know, there's always something new to learn. So thank you, ladies. That's, true. That's, That's very true. true. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to episode two. I really hope you enjoyed it and you can catch me back in the next episode. It's going to be a fun one.